Welcome to What Kind of Asian Are You? The podcast where we explore the diverse and dynamic experiences of being Asian in the diaspora. In this podcast, we bring you a different conversation with an Asian from the diaspora each week, delving into their unique backgrounds, upbringing, and the amazing things they are doing now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to What Kind of Asian Are You podcast, a podcast featuring conversations about being Asian. I am your host, Kyle. And again, if you want to support us, the easiest way is to just keep listening to our podcasts, share with your friends and family, follow us on Instagram at What Kind of Asian Pod. And also, if you're listening to this on your favorite streaming platform, leave us a review or rating. We really appreciate your feedback. And in today's episode, we're going to speak to Amy Yip. She is a somatic life transformation and mental fitness coach who has a new book out. And now to the episode. All right. Hello, Amy. How are you doing today? Thank you for coming on to this show. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me, Kyle. I'm doing awesome. <laughs> Perfect. And it's really good to be able to finally talk to you given that we had this plan earlier and it's been a long time coming, but it just life got in the way and also sickness and whatnot. But now that we're here, I want to get straight into it. Let the audience know who you are, what you're about and all that fun stuff, because um, you've got such a great story to tell and I want pe- more people to know of you and uh, get inspired because I think uh, the energy that you give out, at least in our interaction has always been positive and inspiring so i want that energy to be um, given to our audience as well so let's start off with the most important question what kind of asian are you i'm a chinese american so my parents were born in shanghai and or my dad was born in shanghai and my mom was born in a small village outside of there they eventually made their way to hong kong and my sisters were born in hong kong my parents came to America in the hopes of giving us a better life. And back then, us was just my two sisters. And they had to leave my seven-year-old and two-year-old. They were seven and two at the time back in Hong Kong while they came and established themselves. And when they arrived a year later, surprise, my mom got pregnant. It was not planned. And my father said, this one has to to be the boy. There's two girls. This one's got to be the boy. We're going to keep it. And then I came out and they always joke that my dad fainted in the hospital when I came out because I came out as a third girl. He's like, oh no, too many women. So I am Chinese American, accidental third child of Chinese immigrants. That's such a great story opener in terms of like introducing yourself in like a podcast format, I feel, because that story, I feel, is so kind of, uh, I don't want to say a typical one, but you can hear that, oh, it comes up, especially for those that uh, are daughters in big families where it's like, oh, the dad is like, oh, this is going to be a son. And of course, it ends up being a daughter and that whole story. And I think it's just really such a great way to introduce yourself to kind of give context to what your life would be in terms of being ahead in this family and all that stuff. And we're going to get into all that. But you mentioned you're Chinese American. Your family came to America. I'm sure there's a lot of stories in between with the whole immigrant story to the United States, as a lot of Asian diaspora does. So can you just talk about growing up and how was that like and kind of your experience with being Chinese American. So growing up Chinese American, you know, at home, my parents really didn't speak English. So with my parents, I would speak Chinese. But my parents being from Shanghai, and then living in Hong Kong, their Chinese was always a mixture of the two. So I didn't really speak one or the other, I kind of spoke a blend of the two. And so at home, it was very traditional, you obey, you listen to your parents, it was, it was, you know, at very traditional household. You know, I got beaten with the feather duster. And for those who are not familiar with the feather duster, you could Google it. And it is essentially what a lot of Chinese parents hit their kids with that wooden stick. And so that was my, my, my life at home. Um, and also my, my oldest sister, who is, I guess, t- 
13 at the time when she came to America and she had to stay at home to watch me and my other sister, right? And if you think about kids these days, would you ever leave a 13-year-old to watch a three-year-old and a, a eight-year-old? Um, probably not, but that, that my parents had no choice. And so I grew up with my sister watching us, taking care of us. My parents were always working. And then in the outside world, outside of the house, there was a lot of confusion, I would say, confusion and at times resentment and and not wanting to be Chinese. And I'll tell you a couple of stories. The first time that I realized I didn't belong in this country or the first time I was told I didn't belong, I was three. I was at a playground digging in the dirt, playing with ants. And then all of a sudden I heard this voice that shouted, go home to your own country. And it was said in this really vicious, mean way. And at three, I didn't know what that meant. What do you mean go back to my own country? This is my country, right? Like I was born here. And I remember looking up at her and just seeing the anger and hatred that this woman had. And I remember my mom always saying, you have to be nice. And I was like, well, this woman's not being nice to me. So I shouted to her and I said, well, you go home to your own country, you chocolate lady. And my sisters just grabbed my hands and were like, all right, let's go home. And that was my first experience of feeling like, okay, I don't belong. But this continued on throughout elementary school because my parents always packed lunches that were very traditional, like mapo tofu, which kind of looks like barf. And so at school, people, kids would make fun of me and say, ew, what are you eating? You're, you're eating barf. And they would just make fun of my name because my Chinese name is it's Ching. And so guess what they did? They said, Ching Chong, Ching Chong. So I always hated the first day of school. My parents would come pick me up and they would have accents and people would make fun of that. And so there was this period growing up of feeling like I just don't belong. And I wish my parents spoke better English. I wish I could just have a peanut butter jelly sandwich. Like all I want is to fit in. And so my upbringing was kind of this like trying to navigate where do I belong? Where do I fit in? And, and, you know, wishing that I could be more white and, and just normal. That's really real. And I think a lot of those that are in the Asian diaspora, especially those that are in, growing up in the eighties and the nineties and all that stuff must have gone through that experience. And for those that did grow up in that experience and kind of gone through their own kind of figuring out their life, who they are and stuff, you can look back onto it and be like, wow, what a journey. What are those things that are happening? It shouldn't be the way it was, but it was. And now you, you're out of it. You, you're stronger, better and such. But for us now, I'm thinking as I'm listening to your stories, like, wow, um, even though racism still going to exist, in 2023, a lot of people were still be like, you don't belong in this country and stuff. But I feel like those in the Asian diaspora growing up in these modern times will have an entirely different experience, but still will have to face certain racism. And I just find like, wow, that's really amazing. And I wonder like, what in the world would they be thinking when they hear us saying about our experience of those compared to what they have now? Because I think the way that they're living life now, I feel like they're a little more confident. They see themselves more, but at the same time, they still will have to deal with racism. But I want to know, I, I really want to need, I, I think I need to interview those that are a bit younger that are living mm -hmm. in the now, growing up in schools and stuff. Like, how are they going through it? Cause I think it will be such a stark difference. Have you thought, really thought about that or like seen others around you that have those that are a little younger in the demographic in the Asian diaspora that, you no. Know, their, their experience compared to yours. Yeah, and that's a great thought because it's something that I ponder a lot about because my kid is actually half Chinese, half white. So that's top of mind for me. I'm constantly thinking, well, what's school going to be like for him? Is he going to have to deal with these people saying, you don't belong here? Because he doesn't look fully white. You know, you could tell he's something else too. 
And what I've experienced through interactions with people that are younger than me is that it just depends on how diverse is the area you're growing up in. Like when I was younger, I was one of very few Asians. So I was different and I was unique, right? And so it was like, you could point fingers at me and make fun of me. But in certain areas, like the area that I live in right now, it's some of the the high schools and the schools are a third Asian, in which case you're not the odd one out. I'm sure there's a lot of people with last names of Chen and Chong and you know all the things that people used to make fun of me. And so I think that's a big element. And when I'm thinking about where I want to raise my child, and I've told my husband this so many times, I want him in a place that's diverse. I don't want him to hate his background because other people aren't accepting of him. The last point you said, you don't want your child to hate his background. So let's talk about yourself. So I think you mentioned earlier, like, oh, you had a period in time where you were growing up that was like, you wish you were white or you wish you weren't different. So with all that kind of feelings and going through the motion at that point, did your parents or your family kind of kind of uh address that problem or it was something that wasn't really talked about because for myself i don't think we really talk a lot about racism how to deal with it and all that stuff in my household because i think to the point of you saying your your mom just said you got to be nice i think that's the general idea like as long as you're nice to others even if they're not so nice to you as long as you get out of it where you're not hurt or anything then that's fine but we all know you can't really ignore racism that's not something that will go away as you know times goes on if you don't address it so did they talk about that i'm just curious the short answer no it was not talked about but you know it's kind of two-way because my parents didn't talk to me about it And I think that they weren't fully aware of what was happening in the schools. And I didn't speak up about it. Like it wasn't until I started writing my book and having conversations with my parents that we talked about my incident when I was three on, when I was playing with dirt and this woman tells me to go back to my own country. And it wasn't until then that I started telling my parents about how as a kid, I was made fun of because of my name or my lunches. And we started talking about race. And it was really interesting hearing my parents' perspective. For one, they said, why didn't you tell us, right? We could have done something, but if we didn't know, how could we have done anything? Because apparently when my sister was in school, some girl tried to push her in her heart, in her her chest, and my sister had a hole in her heart and just had surgery. And so when my, my parents when she told my parents, my parents went straight to the school, talked to the the principal and talked to the teachers. And so they said, you know, if we had known, we could have done something, but you never told us. And I, as a kid, never thought to tell my parents. So that was part of it. And it's interesting when I talk to my parents now about race and racism, my dad was saying that basically it doesn't matter where you are. There's always going to be people trying to tear and see who's better than than someone else, right? And he said growing up in China was no different. And everyone there is Chinese, but they would find some way to say you're better than someone else, right? Um, in Shanghai, he said the, the people in Shanghai, the city, would look down on all the villagers around and say how stupid the villagers were. When he got to Hong Kong, the Cantonese people would look down on people from Shanghai and say, oh, you're from mainland. You don't know anything, Right. And so he was like, it doesn't matter where you go. People are going to try to tell you you don't belong. They're going to try to make you feel less than. And you have to make that decision to stand up for yourself and to tell yourself, well, I belong here and you can't tell me that. We talked quite a bit about the things you had to deal with. feels like it wasn't the best, but you persevered and all that stuff. But during that time, how did you kind of deal with it on your own because like you said you didn't have uh that family support for most part because you didn't tell them something was off or that you needed help or something was bothering you so during that time how was your kind of way of uh dealing with it or like living through that because i'm sure it's not something that you would say oh it was fine oh it didn't affect my mental it didn't affect me seeing how the world is 
I, I love that question because I'm fascinated with intergenerational trauma and trauma in general and how that, that gets transmitted. So what I believe is that it created an armor. I, I Growing up from those experiences, I did not allow people in. There are very, very few people that I allowed in. I was not willing to be vulnerable. I wasn't willing to have really close relationships. Um, I was always skeptical about people and it, it was just this armor on. And I, I focused my attention on one, trying to fit in. So trying to find different ways. So you, you would not know the authentic me because I'm trying so hard to fit into different situations and circumstances and be who I thought I needed to be versus who I really was. And I think the second thing is I just focused on what I could control, which was how well do I do in school, in academics, in successes, right? What are those achievements that I could check off in order to build my own self-worth. And that that became something that was very, very much tied to my identity. What's the next thing I can achieve so that I can feel that I am worthy? Very interesting. And I think a lot of other Asian diaspora felt the same way and made certain moves to, you know, feel more at ease, feel like they're like fitting in and such. And would you say like, the idea of like, oh, I need to check boxes or um, be more successful, get success, achieve certain things, kind of cause you to pick the initial career that you have, which would be in the corporate world and stuff. Can you just talk about like that journey? Because I think it kind of relates because I think within the corporate world, you can always see that, oh, there's always tiers that you can get into to the next, to the next, to the next, and be successful and check off boxes. Compared to other careers, I think, more so i i could be wrong but i feel like with the corporate world it feels more like oh you're you're stepping into the next thing after you do x amount of things gain certain amount of success would you say that could be potentially what led you to where you ended up in your first career that's an interesting question i think it's a, a combination and it's kind of a blend because growing up i always tried to rebel because there's a part of me that's like, no, I don't want to be the obedient daughter. I don't want to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. So I'm going to refuse and fight you. And I'm not going to listen to you, right? And then there's the part of me deep down, and I truly believe this for most people, is that deep down, we still crave our parents' approval. Even if we're saying, nope, don't care. I've gotten rid of them. I don't, you know, I, I don't care what they think. Deep, deep down, there's still this desire for their love, for their approval, all of that. And so even though I, I would say, okay, well, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to go in undecided, which pissed my dad off because he was like, how could you not know what you want to do at 18? And I went in undecided, but then I later became a double major. I was computer science and public relations, right? Guess which one was my passion? <laughs> it was communications, PR, right? But that doesn't make much money. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to study computer science too. And so coming out of school, it was kind of the same thing. The right path would have been engineering, right? According to my Chinese parents' expectations, but I was like, nope, I'm not going to do that. But then if you look at the two paths, if I had gone down PR, I would have made like $20,000 a year. Going down the computer science path, I would have made, you know, $50,000, $60,000 back then coming out, for, you know, as a new grad. And so the, the decision maker was, oh, but my parents taught me I had to go after the money. So I went the computer path, but I still tried to rebel by not becoming an engineer. Instead, I went into consulting, which I was like, oh, well, that's different than what, what they wanted. So it was kind of this constant battle between my upbringing and what I was taught and this desire to have freedom and independence and not listen to them. And my mom has always said, I'm, I'm super stubborn. I've always been stubborn. So it's that stubbornness in me. That's like, Nope, I'm not going to listen to you. I, I really like how you said it. Like I tried to rebel, but you did it in a way where it, that wouldn't completely piss them off. 
but at the same time, you feel like you made a difference, like you had agency. I think that was the most important part, even though you did not necessarily end up doing what you truly wanted. Because at the end of the day, I think if you had a choice, if both were the same, you would have probably picked the PR route or communication. If you don't have to care for like the whole mon monetary aspect, would it, would it be incorrect? Or it, it, it could have went where you still would have picked computer science if the money was the same. I think I would have gone PR. I love, I love PR. I love marketing. You know, it's interesting because my, my book was just recently published and what I loved about the, after the writing part was the marketing piece and the PR piece. And I just, I, I loved thinking about it and being creative with it. And that's actually why after my consulting career for eight years, I was like, okay, this is not for me. And I went back to business school and I studied brand management and marketing. And I went into marketing after. So I did end up going down that path. Um, and, and my parents were kind of frustrated because they were like, wait, so you paid $100,000 for business school to take a pay cut to sell cat litter because I became a brand manager on cat litter, right? So my parents, Chinese parents, they don't understand it. They're like, you're going to sell cat litter. That's how they saw marketing. <laughs> you're going to sell cat litter. And you're taking like a twenty, thirty thousand dollar pay cut, paid all this money for school to do that? Like, what? Why? I honestly think that's such a trajectory of a lot of Asian diaspora where they went, I guess, quote unquote, the safer route or the one that they feel like will be still a little rebellious, but still satisfy their parents. But in the end, went back to what they really, truly want later in life, which I think there's no wrong kind of path but imagine if we could be honest with ourselves and have a honest talk and go through with parents of like what you truly want have them understand and like get everyone on board that you could pick something that you like from the start then you can get there sooner rather than later because i think a lot of like asian family they care about the destination they don't want the journey to be so long you, you want to get something effective to something that you know tangible and if you cut down all the, oh, I'm going to do this just to please them. And then you end up doing something else instead, which is, well, ultimately you want and you could be successful in it. It's better just to have that conversation. But it takes time to build that up. And I think a lot of people through either therapy, through uh, coaching, through all that stuff that, you know, can get to that point. And we're going to talk about a little bit about that later on because of your background. But before we get to that, I just want to spend a little time talking to you about your corporate experience because you mentioned that was a, I, I would say a big part of your life for most part because that's what you did that's what you, you know got really good at you step up onto the ladder you exceed it you keep going up to a certain point where it seems like you got burnt out can you just talk about your overall experience within the corporate world the things you were doing and kind of like your your thoughts on the whole experience as a whole because i think for those that got in, goes into corporate world as Asian diaspora, told um, getting out of it, doing something entirely different. That's really an interesting kind of story to tell. Yeah. So I, I was in corporate for 16 years. I was in consulting for eight, got my MBA, went to Clorox as a brand manager for two years, and then ended up at Google. And I was there for five years. And I would say that the corporate... This goes back to when I was young, right? And, and what I had said about me constantly wanting to achieve for my own self-worth, I did not know how to shut off. I did not know how to do a half-assed job, right? I Anything I put my energy into, I put 100% into. And that was great. What I think I struggled with in the workspace, which I think a lot of people in the, in the Asian uh, group struggles with is speaking up, being seen, sharing ideas and self-promotion. Like I sucked at it. And I still remember when I was at Clorox, my manager said to me, Amy, you need to not be in your cubicle all the time. You need to be going around and talking to the senior leaders so that they know what you're doing. And in my mind, I still remember this. I, I came back and I was fuming to my boyfriend at the time, who's my husband. But I was like, 
what does she mean? Like, I'm sitting here actually getting work done and she wants me to prance around to tell everyone what I'm doing. You know, like, that's just absurd. Why would you pay me to do that? And I just didn't understand that unless I told them what I was working on and why I was so great, how are they going to know? Because they're managing so many people, right? And so that was one piece that really stood out. And when I got to Google, it was very similar. So growing up in a, a, a Chinese culture, very traditional Chinese parents, I was taught community. It's about everybody, right? And so I was leading a, t- a global team of like 30 people. And every time I spoke about what we did, I said, we did this. And I kept getting on my performance review, Amy, you need to lead from the front. And I'm like, what do you mean lead from the front? Like, what does that even mean? And in meetings, you know, my team at Google was just very outspoken, white, older individuals. (laughs) And they would just talk to talk, never create space for anybody else. And being of Asian descent, I was taught don't cut people off, be polite, right? So I, it was like watching a ping pong match, just going, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And I, I couldn't find space to speak. And that was another thing that I was told was, well, as a leader, you need to share your ideas. And it was, I, I have to be thankful and so grateful for my manager at Google because she's the one who's, who told me and then said, let's sit down and figure out a plan. Because I told her I struggled to, to cut people off. Like it's just, it just goes against how I was raised. And so one of the things that she did for me was if I wanted to say something, I would G chat her or message her and she would be in the room. So she would be able to say, Hey, everyone, I think Amy has something she wants to say. And then we all, you know, everybody's turning to me. So she kind of created that space where. I felt more comfortable being able to speak. And over time with practice, I got used to saying, hey, I've got something to say. And I would be able to insert myself. But that was, it, that was you know, my upbringing and how it impacted my corporate life. Um, but eventually when I was able to overcome it, like I was able to become a much better leader. Wow, that's really interesting. And I'm so glad for you that you had that manager who be able to, give you the opportunity to have space. Cause I think a lot of times they could just be like, Oh, well, I told them that they need to do this X, Y, and Z, but they're not doing it. They're not claiming what they should get. And as long as I already tried, then that's enough. But they took an extra step to empower you to show you how to do it and let you have space. I think that's wonderful. And I think we as a community have to do that for ourselves and for those around us more and more because I think we're so much thinking like, oh, I'm already there. I need to keep my place. I need to ensure that my place will be secure. So therefore, if I can help others, I, I probably would, but not at the risk of of me losing that spot I already worked so hard for. I think that in a, in a way, it's kind of not doing us any favors at the end of the day because Essentially, if we're a community, if we're in the team, we want everyone to rise to the occasion to where they're supposed to be. Doesn't take away from what you have. I think we need to have that mindset, but, um, I think that's something we can talk more about how we can get into that mindset. Cause after your corporate kind of experience, you moved on to something else that more aligns with what you want to do, what you want to help others with. So can you talk about your breaking point to leading you to another career jump? Because you went from where, oh, I study computer science and PR, got into consulting, you figure out consulting wasn't enough for you. Then you went to business school, did something entirely different again with you know branding, marketing and such. And then now to your current kind of position and just talk about that because I think a lot of people are interested in making that leap themselves because they might be burnt out or they want something new. Yeah. Um, so the interesting thing is when I was first recruited at Google, I had already decided branding is not for me. I was on Hidden Valley Ranch dressing at the time. It's a... Um, it's, it's a dressing brand and 
we were launching a new product and it was a Greek yogurt dressing. And I had to sit in a room with our team lawyer and ask him, what's the minimum amount of Greek yogurt we have to legally put in it to call it Greek yogurt dressing. And I sat there and I'm like, wait, so I paid all this money to go to business school to lie to consumers, to try to get them to buy products that they think is healthy, but is not right. Like, and everything just came down on me that this is, this goes against all my values. And I can't see myself doing this for the rest of my life, but I have no idea what I really want to do anymore. Cause like you said, I went down the computer science route and the consulting round and I went back to business school. So I thought I would go do this eat, pray, love thing and go figure out what I wanted to do in life. And serendipitously, the day that I was, I had already started selling my things. I signed with a, uh, a nonprofit in Kenya to go teach women business schools. And I was looking for flights. And the day that I was looking for flights, a recruiter from Google contacted me on LinkedIn. And he said, there's this role. It's on the food team. You're going to lead a global team and you're going to do marketing. And you're going to do marketing to help people live happier, healthier lives through food. And so my jaw dropped. I was like, wait, you want me to use marketing for good? Like what? And with food, which is one of my favorite things. And I lead a global team and I get to travel. And I immediately responded. And, um, you know, I was very honest with them. I said, I told my landlord I'm moving. I am selling all my belongings. I was looking at flights. So I don't have a very long time because I know the Google recruiting process can be months and months and months. Like I'm going to leave in a month. So if this isn't going to happen, I, I, I don't have that time. 16 days from the time that he contacted me on LinkedIn to when I got my job offer in my inbox because, you know, they were like, nope, you're the person. And so that's super speedy. And that completely shifted everything. I told them that, uh, I, I told my landlord, I'm going to stay. Can I please have my place back? My friends threw me a goodbye party, but it wasn't a goodbye party anymore. It was just like, <laughs> let's party. And so when I started, though, I had said to myself, five years is the maximum amount of time I'm going to stay at Google because I still want to go give back. I want to go volunteer and I want to go explore the world. Right. And what I didn't realize or think about is that in your mid 30s as a woman, you have a lot of pivotal decisions to make. And so I had all these what I call the shoulds which are, you know, what society or parents or teachers tell you, you should or shouldn't do what should or shouldn't matter. And I had a ton of those shoulds just weighing on me at that time when I, I had wanted to leave. So one of the biggest shoulds was my career at Google was going well. And everyone's like, why would you leave? Everyone's trying to get into Google, especially my dad who had been handing my Google business cards around telling everyone, my daughter works here. Look at this. Right. And so everyone was like, you should just stay. What are you thinking? Another of the shoulds was I got a husband during that and husbands change plans clearly. Right. And my husband was an entrepreneur. And so I felt like, okay, well, I need to be the stability for the two of us. And then the biggest should of all as a woman in her mid late thirties is you should have babies. Everyone was going around. I even had someone say, your eggs are rotting, Amy, you're getting old. What are you thinking? You're, you're going to go travel in the prime of your, like you're hitting the last of your baby making years. You better get started. You should just stay. Like, what are you thinking? And so there were just all these shoulds. And eventually my husband was on board with going to travel. So we decided we're going to freeze our embryos. A year later, I got an email and the email basically said, oh, well, the tank that your embryos were in, it lost temperature. And so we don't know the viability of your embryos anymore. And that was when I hit my rock bottom. And that's, that's what I think it is what everyone goes through in order to make that big transition, right? Like that was my big moment. It was my rock bottom moment because this was supposed to be my backup plan and it was no longer a backup plan. And so I tried IVF again. It was not very successful. Um, and so I started this self-help journey. I started with reading books because as a good Chinese girl, I don't talk to people about my problems. I don't air my dirty laundry. So I'm like, oh, but I'm smart enough because I've been taught that. So 
I could read books and figure out the answer of what to do next in my life. Clearly that didn't work because reading books is not going to give me the answer of what I want to do next in my life. And, and then after that, um, a good friend told me about ayahuasca. So ayahuasca is essentially, it's a psychedelic, it's a medicinal plant in Peru. They, they have ceremonies around it, you know, and it is a cleansing of the soul. It gives you clarity. There's a shaman, there's a whole ceremony around it. And it's this, it's a root of a tree that they basically turn into a black concoction that you drink. And so my friend knew what I was struggling with. And so she said to me, Hey, you know, there's this thing called the ayahuasca. It's supposed to give you clarity. And I was like, clarity, that's what I need. I need clarity. So I flew down to Peru for a five day ayahuasca ceremony. And I will tell you that during the ceremony, I got a lot of clarity on a lot of things like the power of vulnerability, like how it's, more courageous to ask for help than to try to be this strong Asian woman who doesn't need anyone's help. Right. And so I learned so much about myself and the truths that kind of got armored up over the years because of my life experiences. And so that was a complete transformation for me, but I left without the answer of, well, do I leave Google and go pursue my dreams to travel and give back to the world? Or do I stay and have babies because my eggs are rotting? So I still didn't have the answer. And it wasn't until um, a co- when I returned, a coworker was telling me about coaching and I had no idea what coaching was. But when my friend explained it, I was honestly kind of skeptical. I was thinking, well, how could somebody give me the answer when they don't even know me? But I was desperate. So I got a coach and my coach is the person who helped me to peel back the layers and get to my core peel back the layers of all the shoulds and get to my core of, well, what is it that really matters to me? What are my values? What do I want in life? And that's when I realized and made two decisions. The first decision is I need to quit my job and pursue my dream because I'm going to regret it if I don't. And even if I stay, I'm not in control of if I have babies or not, right? Like look at, look at the, what happened to the embryos. I had no control over that. Who knows what's going to happen? And then the second decision that I made was I want to go help people the way that my coach helped me because it sucked being stuck. And Asians especially suck at asking for help and, you know, going, pursuing coaching or thinking that they even need coaching. And I want to go help that community to get unstuck, to be able to speak up for themselves, to celebrate themselves, to do all of the things that I used to not be able to do. And so in January of 2020, that's when I left my corporate job at Google. My husband and I packed up backpacks. We sold all our belongings. We just had a backpack and we took a one-way flight to Ghana. And uh, if you remember, COVID happened that year. So we ended up stuck in Ghana for seven months. And when borders reopened, we started living and working nomadically. I wouldn't call it traveling because the world wasn't really open, but we did get to go to different places, live there, work from there. And as a coach and speaker at the time, I could do it from anywhere as long as I had internet access. So that's what we did. And to close the loop on the story, the fascinating thing is the year that my husband and I turned 40, we said, we should probably start trying to have babies. And then whenever, you know, if if it's unsuccessful for a year, let's go back to the US and see about those embryos, if they're viable and maybe adopt. And I was certain that we would not be able to get pregnant because everyone was saying, you're 40, you're old, right? Like you're not, it's going to take forever. Two months in, we got pregnant. And so now I have a 20 month old, beautiful little baby boy, super healthy. And so the thing that helped me back from leaving was this fear of not being able to have a family. And the thing that brought me back was my, my awesome little kiddo. That's so beautiful and just crazy how life ends up especially when all the things in your past would have dictated that, oh, you follow this path, it's going to lead you to somewhere. But at that point where you still haven't had a kid that you wanted, then you try swift gear, that's when what you wanted most for what you're planning for happened. I think that speaks a lot to where, you know, just because there is a path that you know know, should work doesn't mean you have to exactly follow to a T. You could make your own path, 
go upon it and still maybe end up to where you ultimately wanted to go in the first place. And I think a lot of times we just need that clarity, either through like your experience with ayahuasca or through coaching, through therapy and all that stuff. So you transitioned and became a coach and you work a lot on helping people get unstuck. So my question now is like for those that may be interested in like uh, going through this experience, getting a coach and such and working on what you like, I feel like you like to say as mental fitness. Can you just talk about what is mental fitness to you and what kind of things that you think people, even if they are trying to get a coach first, could do it on their own to kind of start that journey on into a right path or like to get stronger mentally before they reach out for further help. Yeah, so so mental fitness is essentially your ability to handle stress and anxiety and frustrations that come to that come along with everyday circumstances, right? Everyday stuff is thrown at us. So how well are you able to handle it? And COVID is a great example. You see some people thrived during it, right? COVID was not a great thing, but some people thrived, some people did not. What is the difference? It was their their mental fitness of how are you able to handle whatever situation or circumstance comes your way? My life dream was thrown out the door because of COVID, right? I had done, I had gone on this whole journey because I had wanted to go see the world and, and volunteer and all of that got thrown out and I ended up just stuck in Ghana in a little, um, they call it a chalet, but it's not really a chalet. I got stuck in this little room with my husband for seven months, right? And so I could have gone one of two ways. I could have made the best of the situation and seen the gift or opportunity in it, or I could have just sat in bed being upset about it. And that's the difference between mental fitness. It is, do you sit on that survival side of the brain, the where all, all the saboteurs live, or do you sit in that deeper wisdom of this this inner knowing, right? And there's a lot of neuroscience behind it. And there's essentially those two sides of your brain. And I would say as a first step, it's to become aware of, well, which saboteurs do I have and take notice of when they show up. And there's 10 different saboteurs. So the research has found that there's 10 and there's the judge, which we all have. It's the master saboteur and the judge judges ourselves known as the inner critic judges others also known as like, you know, Asian mother criticizing you, <laughs> like, you know, that, that criticism, that's the judgment. She's judging you because my mom just left earlier today. So that's why it's top of mind. Um, and then judgment of situations, situations and circumstances. And then there's nine other saboteurs and we all have different levels of, of them. There's the hyperachiever, the hyperrational, hypervigilant, pleaser, controller, victim, um, and there's two others I can't think of off the top of my head, but it's, so it's becoming aware of, well, which are my top saboteurs and how do they mess with me? And that's the very, very first step because awareness is how you bring choice. If you're unaware and it's just happening in the background, you're not going to be able to do anything about it. That's really interesting. And I hope that um, those listening can definitely check that out and learn more about it and hopefully that will help them in their journey what in whatever that they're dealing with that may be difficult for them at this point because i think um everyone deserve clarity deserve a way to find inner peace and be their best self i think i push for a lot of you know be, become the best self you could be on this podcast because i think that's beautiful and that's where you should be going towards uh, regardless of your achievements or successes, it's all about being your best self. Even if you don't achieve whatever you think you should achieve, as long as you feel the best about yourself and being your best self, I think that's all that matters. And um, you talked about how, oh, you got into becoming a coach and helping others that you want to help or that you find that um, they're stuck and such. Can you just talk about a few of those wins that you may have with those that you coach in terms of like, what are the things that you notice that uh, the people that have reached out to you uh, want you to help them with and, you know, kind of the journey of like coaching someone through? Because I think it's still such a mystery for a lot of those that may be interested in coaching, what that necessary entail. Is it like therapy? Is it, or is more sort uh, more like a personal fitness coach where you go through exercises, but 
this, I guess for what you do, a lot more mentally driven ones. Okay, just talk about somewhat of a process that more typical kind of coaching session it would be for yourself or those in the coaching business for what those that are um, looking for that. Yeah, and and every, so here's the thing is the coaching industry in general is unregulated, right? It's not like therapy where you have to go get certain certifications. And so the the most important thing I highly recommend when, you know, people are looking for a coach is to make sure they're certified and figure out where are they certified? Are they certified at a reputable place? Do they have referrals? Um, because there are some people that just put up a sign and say, I'm a coach and that's it. Right. And so for me, I'm a lifelong learner. So I was actually certified at Hudson Institute. I was certified, uh, at positive intelligence, which is the mental fitness piece. And I was also certified at Strozzi Institute, which is somatic coaching. And somatic coaching is all around the body. We are very out of touch with our bodies. Most of us are. But the thing is, in order to change and transform, it requires the body. And here's why. So for example, earlier today, I was working with a client who was trying to say no, trying to set her boundaries and be able to say no to people. And if you think about it, no is just a two-letter word. It should be easy for you to say, right? Like there's there should be nothing. There's nothing that I need to tell you or teach you to say no. You just go to someone and be like, no. But with her, something happens in, in situations and circumstances where it becomes hard. And so the way that I might coach her like today was we started to become aware of what was happening in her body. And, and here, here's why the body is important. Our tissues have knowledge, our muscles have memory. So for example, if you're uh, learning to ride a bike or drive a car or play a sport, the first time you do it, you probably fumble. You gotta think a lot about it. You're not so great. What happens by the 10th, 100,000th time? It becomes easier. Your, your muscles remember. You don't even have to think about it anymore, right? Like you're probably texting and driving and doing all this stuff, you know, but don't text and drive people. <laughs> but like you're doing all these things because you your body just remembers how to do it. And it's the same thing with how we show up in life. So if we struggle to say no, then at some point in our life, we were taught saying no is not okay. And so we taught our bodies to stop doing that. And what was happening with her was that she was taught from a young age, she's a nice girl from the Midwest and nice girls from Midwest don't say no. You're community-based, you're nice, right? And so anytime she wanted to say no, her body literally went into fight, flight, freeze. Her heart rate would raise, her throat would tighten. And so how do you, when your body does that, it doesn't feel good. So what does she do? She says yes to get rid of the no, right? And so it's somatic coaching is a little different than traditional coaching in that we're teaching the body a different way of doing things. And and so the way that I coach is different from a lot of coaches because I combine all of my training. So there's the traditional coaching, which um, is very much, I ask you a lot of questions to to bring visibility to stuff you might not see. It's almost like if I were holding up a mirror and you were forced to look in that mirror and there might be things you don't notice or there might be things you just don't want to look at, but I'm holding it up for you to see. So in a typical coaching session, it's me asking questions and digging deeper and deeper. It can get uncomfortable, but it's it's that piece of self-awareness that comes up. And then from that self-awareness, you know, it's kind of like if the self-awareness brought to light that, well, I, I struggle to say no and I want to say no, then I might bring in the somatic piece to actually help you with the change. Because just knowing you want to change is not going to actually change you. It's like everybody's saying they want to get healthier. Everybody knows what it takes to get healthier, yet they still struggle, right? So it's really about how do we transform that piece. That's very interesting. And I um, look forward to looking into coaching more in depthly, not necessarily get into it, but like just know more about it. Cause I think it could be beneficial and I hope others can look into it as well, just for interest. And also if they really need to um, seek help, they, they, they can look into it as a route because I think a lot of people around me, I notice either uh, t 
take upon in coaching or coaches themselves that I think is really interesting. And I think it's been a tr- something that's been happening more and more, especially after COVID or during COVID. I see a lot of people um, get into coaching as a coach themselves or seeking coaches for assistance to um, get better or um, look at things differently. And I think it's a really interesting thing people can look into in addition to other ways of not getting the help that you need either like you said first off by reading learning educating yourself and also you know there's also the therapy piece if you really need really professional assistance and of course the coaching now you talk about and now that you're saying all that about being a coach and stuff but um the reason that we kind of got connected was because you released a book and how did that come upon like it's i'm, I'm not going to say it's different from what you do as a coach but it's still a stretch of no what got you wanting to write this book and what was the journey like and let the audience know about the book and more yeah so um my book is called unfinished business breaking down the great wall between adult child and immigrant parents and it actually is very related to my coaching and i'll tell you the story of how it started A lot of people come to me for coaching because they're trying to figure out what they want to do next in life. So essentially coaching is very much forward looking. So you kind of talked about therapy and coaching therapy is backwards looking. It's like, how do I heal from the past? Whereas coaching is forward looking, where do I want to go? And so I have a lot of people coming to me to try to figure out, well, where do I want to go next in my life? I'm not sure. I'm not happy where I am, but I don't know where I want to go. Kind of like where I was before. And so Three and a half years ago, I was working with a, a Chinese American woman. She was about 55, senior vice president at one of the largest banks in America. Very successful. And she came to me because she wasn't happy. She wanted to figure out what do I want to do next in my life. And so through our coaching, she realized, oh, I really want to do something creative and I want to start my own business. And as we continue to work together, she said, oh, but... I have to wait until my father passes away. I can't do this yet. And when I asked her, well, what makes you believe that? She said, because when I became senior vice president, he said, okay, great. And the next thing you're going to become is president. And as we continued our conversations, she said that she could not have conversations with him right now. She could not talk to him about what she really wanted to do. And it is because she goes into what she called little girl mode around her father where she was so afraid of his disapproval, of his disappointment, of him criticizing her that she was like, I can't go there. I'd rather just wait. And I started seeing this pattern among a lot of my clients where they go into little girl, little boy mode when they think about what they want to do that might disappoint or upset their parents. And so many of them also refused to have conversations with their parents. So they would either do what she did, which is, okay, I'm not going to do anything until they're, they're out of my life, or people would lie about it. They're like, okay, I'm just going to lie and still go do the thing, but not tell my parents. And I started wondering, well, what are the stories in my life? What are the stories that I have about my parents that I haven't shed? And mind you, at this time, I had done so much self-work. You know, I'd done the ayahuasca thing. I had, you know, um, become a coach. I've gone through all this training. And I thought, oh, surely I've cleared all that stuff out. But I still had so much of that crap. I still had all these stories, everything from, well, I married a white guy instead of an Asian, a good Chinese boy. So, you know, my parents are not happy or my success will never be good enough for my parents or I'll never be able to repay my parents for their sacrifices. So I had all these stories and in the book, I call them myths. So they're essentially these stories that I had that continued to control my life, even though I didn't want it to. And I decided this was, this was in the midst of COVID. I was stuck in Ghana. I was honestly a bit afraid of losing my parents because COVID was killing the elderly and my parents were not in the best of health. Plus there was all this rise in AAPI hate in America. And so I was, and, and all those older people looked like my parents. So I was kind of afraid when I was stuck in Ghana that I wouldn't see them again and that I wouldn't get a chance to have this conversation. So I called my dad up and I said, Hey, do you want to talk to me? You know, I want to learn about your life experiences and I want to learn about your story. And on it's kind of telling how he thinks 
because he said to me, well, I was just a restaurant worker, so I'm not very special, but why don't you talk to your uncle? He was a lawyer. He surely got a lot of stories, right? And so that kind of shows you how he thinks about prestige and titles. And I, I had to persuade him that it was his story that mattered and not my uncle's. And so finally they decided, okay, sure, we'll talk to you. And it took three years, 40 plus hours of conversations to get to where we are. And I will tell you the first 20, 25 hours were just so tough. So many big emotions, tears, anger, resentment. I would come home crying to my husband and saying, what the F am I doing? My parents are never going to change. What am I thinking? And I wanted to quit so many times, but I'm so glad I didn't because now on the other end, we have a completely different relationship where they say they're proud of me. They say, I love you. They're affectionate, you know, um, and they'll, they'll still say things like critical things, but it doesn't hit me as hard because I understand their story and why they do it. So that's what I hope for for other people. So the, the way the book is structured is there's eight different myths and each myth has, I share my story and then I share my parents' side of the story. And I think that's what's unique about it because most book is, books are one-sided, whereas mine, I share both sides of that, that myth, that story. And then at the end of each myth, I have something called a date with your parents so that the reader can go on a date with their parents. And there's self-reflective prompts and there's questions the reader can ask their own parents. There's light questions, deep questions, so they can really dig into their own parents' stories. That's amazing. And I'm so happy that you did this because it really, I could see, I could feel like, oh, it did a lot for you and your family because the amount of deep talks that you will have for doing this book to start with must have been a lot, like you said, over 40 hours. And would you say that at the end of it, even if the book wasn't a thing, it really helped solidify kind of um, better understanding for yourself, but also your parents? Because I think a lot of times other people say, oh, I did work on my own and also kind of try to resolve things with my parents and stuff. A lot of times they will often say, oh, well, I think I got my closure piece, but at the end of the day, it didn't really click for the parent side. So what would you say your experience with your journey doing this book with uh, your parents and also yourself? Did, did you first get closure for all the things that are the myths and also what did they kind of get out of it in your opinion? Yeah, I, I I love that question. So I will I will share this story. I was not pregnant yet when I started this, right? I wasn't pregnant yet. And so I started having these conversations. I was recording them. And then I got pregnant. I came back to the US and had my baby. And during that time, there was kind of a pause in these conversations. When I was restarting the conversations, I went back to listen to the recordings. And I was so surprised because... The words I used were fine, but my tone was so not nice. My tone was defensive. It was kind of this air of, oh, you know, you're doing this again. Um, and I, I was completely shut off from my parents. And what I realized in that moment is if my son, Logan, grew up and talked to me like that, how would I feel? How would I respond? would I really open up to them? And it would, it, it would probably be no. And it would really, really hurt if he talked to me like that in that tone. And up to that point, honestly, the conversations were rough. It was surface level conversations. I mean, some a little deep conversations, but it didn't get very far. Right. And it was after that, I went into the conversations remembering how would I want Logan to talk to me? And also I changed my approach. It wasn't about me wanting them to understand me so I could heal. It wasn't about me wanting to change their ideas or their beliefs or, you know, them. It was about me just listening, me trying to understand and be curious. And that completely shifted everything. When I started just opening up, listening to them with curiosity, with openness, they became curious about me after they shared their story, after they felt safe, after they felt heard, they started sharing their stories with, they, they, they shared their stories with me and then they wanted to know more about me, right? And I think I've heard this from so many, so many kids of, of immigrant parents of like, oh, well, they won't listen to me and they don't ever understand me. And I'm like, well, have you ever tried just to understand them? 
with no other intention but to understand them. And until you do that, why do you expect that they need to understand you? For sure. And wow, so it's so powerful, like being able to do this. I'm so happy for you guys, your family and such. Um, do you feel like doing this whole uh, kind of conversation piece and then now the book and now the release, they know about it and all that stuff. What would you say your kind of, not just your relationship with them, but how you guys converse and stuff? Is it different compared to when you first started or how has the change been for you guys? It is so different. So I'll give you a couple examples. Like one of the examples, um, I'm a speaker and my dad used to say to me, who would pay you to speak? I'd pay you to shut up, you know, like jokingly, but it still kind of burns. And a few months ago, my dad dropped me off at the airport six in the morning. And I said to him, go home, go rest. I really appreciate you taking me here, but you must be so tired. And he said, seeing my daughter go do her thing gives me energy, right? And that in itself, 180. And what's even bigger is my, my, um, in, in May, I was going through fertility treatment. So I was trying to see if those embryos worked because I wanted to, we, we wanted an, another kid and it failed. My parents called me and my dad said, Hey, so how are you doing? When do you find out? I was so afraid to tell him the truth because eight years ago, nine years ago, my sister had a miscarriage and my parents basically blamed her. They said, you must have done something to cause it. And after a failed embryo transfer, I didn't need somebody to blame me for it, right? I already felt kind of crappy. So my body completely went into this like freeze mode of what do I do? And I thought about lying. I thought about like holding off and telling him, oh, I don't know yet. But I was like, okay, I wrote this book. I have to be courageous. So I said, there's no, there's no baby. And I was bracing myself for criticism. And instead, my dad said, you know, fate is a funny thing. Sometimes things work out. Sometimes they don't. Don't blame yourself. And my jaw dropped. I was like, who are you? And then my mom picks up the phone because they still have a landline. So she picks up one of the house phones. And I'm like, uh-oh, she's going to say something. And she gets on and she says, Amy, are you crying? Are you okay? Don't cry. Do you need food? I'll bring you food, right? And so it was this complete shift in how they responded to me versus my sister. And it's not because they like me more. It's just because they've built that empathy. They built that understanding and they know the kinds of things that will hurt me. Wow, that's so beautiful. And honestly, I think we should end on that such great, beautiful story because I think the ability to see your own parents grow and mature not mature but like gain another side that you never seen them have growing up that's so beautiful and um makes the bond so much stronger and i hope that those that want that for themselves and their family definitely check out your book and you no know, get into it get into those deep conversations and um work on that relationship and it's again it's a two-way street like you mentioned um understand them listen to them and then they'll be able to reciprocate hopefully eventually i'm not saying that it will but at least you can say you give it a, a try if it doesn't work it doesn't work but at least you can say at least i tried and this conversation has been so good just because of hearing your wins your stories of how you know everything ended up how you know you kind of envision from the start, even though it took a different journey than you expected. But I think we should be grateful that everything ended up how it would be or how you want, not necessarily where you did what you should have done. I think that's the biggest takeaway I've gotten with our conversation. And um, on this note, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you? Where can they check your stuff out? And any parting words for those that are trying to be their best selves? Yeah. Um, so folks can find me on my website, which is amyyipcoaching.com. It's A-M-Y-Y-I-P coaching.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Amy C. Yip on LinkedIn. And my book, Unfinished Business, is available at all the largest online retailers, Amazon, Books A Million, 
uh, Barnes and Noble and bookshop.org. That's great. And any parting word for those that are on their own journey, child, um, hopefully gain clarity, any kind of main parting words for that? Cause I think, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I encourage people to always recognize is there's always a gift and opportunity in every situation or circumstance. It is not obvious in the moment, but there's always a gift or opportunity. It's kind of like that whole embryo situation that happened to me is what threw me into this trajectory, right? Getting stuck in Ghana is actually what gave me that time to really even think about to coaching people, working with people, and also what I wanted to find out about my parents, right? So there's always a gift and opportunity. You just don't realize it in the moment. Yeah, and on this note, again, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Very inspirational, very uh, thought-provoking, and um, all the best to you and all that you do. And uh, thank you for everyone for listening and tuning into another episode of What Kind of Asian Are You podcast. Till next time, bye. Bye, thank you. Thank you for listening to What Kind of Asian Are You? We hope that our conversations about the diverse experiences and perspectives within the Asian community have been enlightening and thought-provoking. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at What Kind of Asian Pod for updates and behind-the-scenes content. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and review on Spotify and Apple. It really helps us reach more listeners who could benefit from these important conversations. If you're feeling generous and want to support the show, you can buy us a coffee through the link in our bio. Every little bit helps us continue to bring you new episodes each and every week. Most importantly, we hope you'll tune in next week for another insightful conversations about being Asian. Until then, take care.